Welcome to Tidbits of Research. My name's Sparanda Sandu. I am joined today by Dr. Jennifer Pierre, a human-computer interaction researcher and information scientist, currently working as a user experience researcher at Google. She received her PhD from the Department of Information Studies at UCLA, holds a Master's of Library and Information Science from the same department, and a Bachelor of Science in Communication from Cornell University. Broadly, her work examines how people use social, digital, and interactive media to form and maintain communities. We talk today about her interest in understanding how people work, and studying how day-to-day life intersects with technology, how she figured out that she wanted to pursue the PhD path, as well as part of her teaching philosophy on the importance of transformative learning experiences. Jennifer Pierre, welcome to Tidbits of Research. Thanks. You are a user experience researcher and information scientist. What was your favorite school subject growing up? We're going all the way back here. Oh, wow. Yes, (laughs) really. I love that as a starting question, though, going right to the beginning. Uh, Let's see. It was a tie between English and probably like art, but specifically performing arts. So I've always been involved in some facet or another with performing arts. And I just really enjoyed that creative outlet. I think there were actually some really interesting ways that those two classes or areas of um, academic areas intersected because sometimes like in English, you'd be learning about specific plays or writers that we would then be able to apply right away um, in plays that we were doing actually like as an entire class. Um, So I really loved that. And to be honest, so I I think there were always maybe signs of the fact that I was going to become an interdisciplinary like practitioner or researcher in some way, because as I'm thinking about it more, I feel like I loved the ways in which a lot of the classes blended into one another, because when we were doing Shakespeare plays, for example, that was a beautiful combination of a lot of the things we were learning in English about prose and writing in performing arts classes, and then also history, because there was so much to learn there about what human life was like back then, like what the culture was like, what the lifestyle was like, how people spoke and the things that were important to them. So yes, I think to summarize the intersection of those areas, anything that helped me better understand to how people work, I feel like I was very interested in that. (laughs) I like that, how people work. Would you say that's basically your focus now, understanding how people work? Absolutely. So that's one of the reasons that I wanted to get into research in general is I, uh, when I first started my undergrad career, I thought I was going to become a journalist for a while. And actually, it wasn't that surprising that I eventually transitioned into research because a lot of what I loved about journalism was getting to uncover people's stories in a specific way, the way that you can craft questions and probe and ask about things and just really uncover these beautiful stories and narratives that people have to share to understand more about them, but also whatever given topic or context they're investigating. But then I realized that we could do this in such a more um, kind of systematic and like unique and interdisciplinary way through research. So I started to take a couple of classes as a communication major, and I started to take classes not just in common media, but in common information technology and all of the work that we did there on human computer interaction and what research looks like um, when you're diving into questions of like, how does 
how does day-to-day life intersect with technology and what does that help us learn about how people work was just incredibly fascinating to me. So that's actually how my research career took off. I decided after that class, like I need to do do this as a career. (laughs) Okay. So I, I loved your story about how your interest was sparked into what you're doing today. Because I was reading about how you started in your degree at Cornell here is in communications. And then you got to pursue your PhD in information studies. So I'd like first to kind of hear more about this path, but also how did you find out that this is a potential path for you? Because it doesn't necessarily feel like the traditional, I just like using the word traditional because, you know, it doesn't make sense, but maybe less common. That probably isn't a good expression for it anyway. But no, I hear what you mean. How did you find out that this path is a is a path for you? Definitely. Yeah. And I would say to some extent, more broadly, like the PhD is just not the most traditional career path. You know, I think like all of us can get that to an extent. We go into these programs and you know, maybe we're the first in our families or first in our friend groups or whatever else. So there's a lot of explaining and education that we that is done around, you know, how does this even work? Like, how did you realize what a PhD was and what that path is? So I totally, I think it's a very valid way to frame it. (laughs) But so for me, for my personal path, like I said, I entered into honestly a much more traditional track um, because I was studying communication, majoring in that. And my specialization was in communication and media. And a lot of folks who go into comm as an undergrad major will do that and go into journalism, like maybe media work in some regard, you know, maybe like social media management, or there are a lot of really common paths at multiple companies that service that track and are a really good match for that track. So it was interesting, and I think a little bit surprising, you know, to other people in my life that it took such a drastic shift over time. But I'm really no regrets. I'm very happy with how it ended up. Basically, so I think what opened up that path a lot for me and helped me to realize that this was a real option was first and foremost, the coursework that I was taking that became much more research oriented. So one of the things actually that I really highly value about the way that the communication department at Cornell is structured is that they're very invested in helping students form a well-rounded understanding of the field. So both in the much more tactical like practitioner sense and in the field of study sense. So there are classes that you can take on you know, public speaking, on PR, on media relations, um, if you're really committed to going into more of a, a practice-oriented career track. But then you're also required to, on the flip side, take research methods courses and learn more about what actually influences the foundation of our field? What influences our understanding of how different styles of communication work, like the science of communication has come to be, um, how we can use that both in practice and in theory. And so after I started to take some of those methods courses and then actually loved those so much that I started to take a lot of electives in the communication and information technology area, it opened up a whole deep dive for me in terms of looking at what actually is, what does it mean to be a full-time researcher? What are the pathways there, the career pathways? And that, of course, led me to just engage more with my professors at the time, who obviously were the closest, um, quickest example on what it means to be a researcher full-time and what that looks like. So towards the end of my senior year, I had started to look into 
graduate programs a little bit more at the recommendation of some of my professors. And there, I actually, I still took one year in between under my, the end of my undergraduate career and the start of my graduate studies. Um, but in that year, I got really serious around like joining. Um, I actually joined a, a research lab at that time and started to do more undergraduate level like research assistant work um, with that at the interaction design lab at the time. It's like a cross interdisciplinary research lab between the communication and information science department at Cornell. And that gave me a quick understanding of, is this something I actually want to do for, you know, a five or more years? <laughs> and the answer was, was yes. And I'm really grateful to, to Dr. Jerry Gay, who was a, a really great mentor for me at that time. She helped a lot um, with both herself looking over some of my graduate applications, and then also putting me in touch with other people who could do the same, you know, who had gone through that path before. Same with the PhD students in the lab. So I think that there was a series of steps there where the coursework led me to look into research, which led me to look into graduate studies. And then I started to really engage with that personally myself as a research assistant, and then ultimately committed to applying for PhDs and going for it. It's amazing that you were able to have that experience that was so helpful and also figuring out, like, should I do this PhD or not? A lot of times I think we just get like, well, you should just, you know, ask yourself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which, I mean, you do need to do that, but sure. it can't, at least for me, it couldn't end there because it's such a big decision. It was really, really critical, I think, for me to get to be talking to people who are well beyond their PhD, who are in the thick of their PhD, and who are also in my position where they were just considering and weighing the pros and cons of like starting one. And so getting those perspectives, yeah, is, is super helpful. <laughs> Looking back now, and I just offended a few weeks ago, so I think about these things a lot, but yeah. <laughs> thank you. Was it what you expected it would be? Mm. Yeah, what was surprising, I guess? That's a great question. You know, I would love, I like that question as just one that I think I'm going to journal about <laughs> the next few months. You don't have because... to share. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm happy to share. I'm just, it has immediately helped me realize that that's an area that I think would be useful to reflect on more because it, it, there were definitely a lot of twists and turns in the PhD journey that I didn't anticipate, but I think I also went in with an attitude of like, it could, I, I'm not sure that I had really concrete expectations, for mm -hmm, example, mm -hmm. it was kind of like that there was so much new happening. So for example, I went to UCLA for my PhD and prior to that point, I, I grew up in New Jersey and then went to school for undergrad New York. And prior to that point, I had really only been in the Northeast. I had never been to the Midwest, the West, I'd done like some limited international travel as well, but even that was pretty much in the East Coast area. And so it was a huge cultural shift for me to all of a sudden be living so many miles from anywhere uh, for any of my family or like close friends. Like I was moving to a brand new city, I was moving to LA from Ithaca, which is a huge shift. Like there was this climate shift as well. Like the just, you know, the physical environment was incredibly beautiful but really different you know all of a sudden being in this southwest like hot dry place which I loved but you know just so much was new about it and so I think that actually the fact that this was very visibly and like tangibly this really new radically different chapter in my life 
I also was treating the PhD that way, where it's like, oh, it's just, you know, there's so much that could happen in these next few years. It's going to be a whole new me type of thing. But more practically speaking, I think one of my, like maybe I had some broad level set of expectations where I knew that I was going to, or expected to just push my mind to its limits for lack of a better <laughs> way of phrasing it. And that was absolutely true. I still remember the first few weeks of my seminars and just being in those rooms with, you know, these incredibly smart professors, like throwing these really deep questions at you and asking for your specific opinions on the readings in a way that I hadn't engaged with before, especially on a weekly, you know, almost daily basis and learning and honing the skills of kind of that back and forth dialogue and debate around certain theoretical or practical topics and information studies or information science with my colleagues. Like that was incredibly rewarding. It was really challenging, um, but it really changed the way that I think as a person. I mean, I think like the level of critical thought that you come out of a PhD with is, it's so valuable to me. You've noticed it. Yes, I've definitely noticed it. So let's take, for example, like when I celebrated the one year mark of my PhD, I was like, okay, I finished one year of coursework. Like I can do this. Like it's hard, but I think I, I will be able to finish type of feeling. Yeah. I looked back at the way that I wrote and constructed arguments, both in my, you know, really hyper specific academic setting, but also even in my personal life. So how I was writing and speaking about topics that were important to me, like different, you know, social activism topics and things like that. My arguments were so much more nuanced and so much more, I think, trying to think of the right word for it, but so much more like comprehensive. Like I found myself too, really trying to much more deeply analyze all sides of a particular argument more than I had before so that I could actually open up much more rich discussions, I think, with you know both my colleagues and my friends. And I think a lot of that was understanding like right away that there are so many ways to read and interpret information and scholarship to respond to scholarship yourself and to produce like your own original research. You, you just have to be so so detailed and so thoughtful about it um, and but also still creative about it you know you find these gaps and you find ways to connect and and thread like different areas of, of work and research together so I think all of that was incredibly challenging to do the first year but definitely changed the way that I think and just you know like interpret the world mm -hmm. that's awesome zooming in maybe a little bit into your research I was reading about it. It's, and I'm going to quote, <laughs> how underrepresented and minoritized groups use media and data to form and maintain communities. How are these groups using media differently? Oh, that's a great question. So what I focused on in my dissertation was, so there are a couple of different goals. One was that there was a pattern that I was seeing in a lot of um, psychological and sociological and information science research that tends to often unintentionally kind of view patterns of technology use in like more of a deficit model. So looking at who has access to technology versus who doesn't and what for, for the latter group, what they're lacking because of that lack of access to technology or that lack of like understanding of technological use. 
And I obviously understand the approach there. And it's like a really natural way to kind of paint things. But what I really was interested in doing more in my dissertation work was trying to uncover what are actually the differences in like core values or social capital that are happening in different like minoritized and marginalized groups? Like what are the ways actually that tech is being used really uniquely or where are the areas of awareness in those groups that are motivating particular styles of tech use, even if there, there are challenges around, you know, things like access or understanding or whatever else. So with that grounding, one of the sets of findings from that work was that at least with the groups of teens and tweens that I was working with, which are really wonderful, I'm so happy and honored that I got the chance to work with them for a few years. They had particular patterns of using social media use to reinforce systems of social support in their lives. And I think to an extent, all of us do this, definitely. I mean, that's one of the gains, or that's one of the really potential positives of social media use is that use for social support, meaning using social media to reinforce and confirm that there are people out there that care about us or that there are people out there that, you know, we have a loving relationship with. Like it's a really, it's a really interesting and important new tool as of the last few decades to reinforce and confirm that. And there are a lot of ramifications then for, you know, what that means for our identity formation, what that means for like the way that we form close and more long distance relationships and all of that. So it's a whole can of worms that's fun to dive into. But what was different for the groups that I was working with is that they had a few different patterns of use that were particular to them because of the challenges that they faced in a lot of face-to-face relationship building. So many of the groups that I was working with were, you know, from low-income backgrounds, for example, or just had various different community and social dynamics that sometimes just weren't as easy in the day-to-day. And so what that meant for their social media use was it became more important, A, to use that, use the different platforms that they were working with. Them is, you know, mostly at the time Musical.ly, which was the precursor to TikTok, um, and then Snapchat and Instagram. So using those as daily check-ins and confirmations of the different loving and caring relationships they had in their lives, typically their close friends. There was less use for relationships that didn't have any face-to-face component. So there were some really interesting findings around things like their perception of safety and their perception of closeness and what that means for like participating in completely distributed online communities, for example, there wasn't as much engagement there. Um, And that's something I'd actually love to dig into more to see if that changes, you know, with age or that changes with enough of that close relationship bonding for, you know, maybe the first few tween years. And then there were a couple of different themes around the way that they use this for emotional regulation. So if there are things that are happening that are difficult in their home or school life or wherever else, what those check-ins actually did to increase their sense of closeness with their friends. I think one of the most important takeaways, one of the ones that I like to harp on the most is actually the intersection between how they were using social media, not just as a standalone tool for doing all these things, but as a tool to create like a fluid pathway of their feelings of closeness, their confirmation of these friendships and social support networks online with 
existing social support networks outside of any digital space too. So I was looking at the context of boys and girls clubs, actually, so different youth development programs. And those played such a a core role for providing like a foundational sense of safety and closeness that they could actually use social media to enhance. Um, And so one of the arguments there is that you need both, essentially. Like, I I didn't see a world in which social media could have just existed as successfully as a tool for social support building without the really important parallel or intersecting space of the youth development programs that they were involved in. And of course, you know, their familial relationships and and friend relationships face-to-face as well. What are the impacts of this kind of research that you see? Yeah, great question. So... There are a few different ones. I think the fun part about interdisciplinary research is that the impacts could be so, you know, you can go in so many different directions. Like some people will read this work and talk with me about, you know, what are the policy implications? So that's one potential pathway is how do we, how do we craft public policy that helps a build even more robust infrastructure, for example, like youth development programs, but in a way that can combine with just like an acknowledgement and an understanding of the way that they're using different online communities and social networking platforms and just create like more fluidity between those spaces. So one of the actual short-term impacts of this work was I used the findings to inform a short 10-week introduction to computer information science series for one of the particular club sites. And we talked for a few weeks about things like social media use. So one of the exercises that we did in one week was reflecting on the interviews that I had been doing with a lot of these kids in the last several weeks, um, reflecting on what that meant to them, like what did it feel like to actually talk through their own individual social media practices, and how can we use that to be even more intentional? So if there are ways that we're seeing, like, when I feel a certain emotion, I use social media in a particular way, and here's what works or what doesn't work about that, like how can we turn that into a real action plan that somewhere like the Boys and Girls Club can be aware of um, and help further educate on. Um, so that again, the, the goal there being, you know, the most positive use possible as consistently as possible, so that there's not so much fear or anxiety on both like the kids end and their parents end or other authority figures end around like the potential cons of using those platforms. So that's one space to go in. Um, and then I think one that I that's close to my heart, especially uh, because it in part influenced my decision to go into industry, is how this work can help us as being like designers of technology. So product development teams at different big tech companies, how can we use these sets of findings and this type of user understanding to become much more granular and nuanced about how we design and build for agency and social media use and design and build for um, like a real acknowledgement of how social support processes and how social support building works. So I was working on the Stadia team and using some of those findings to influence how we think about gaming communities and how we think about inclusion games, for example, and building digital spaces that can take those types of findings into account. Um, I just started at YouTube a few weeks ago, but hoping to open up a similar dialogue and set of practice around that. If we're taking such a, I don't know, broad overview of social media itself, honestly, some of my social experiences online have been pretty negative. Mm-hmm. What kinds of advice would you have then for someone who is trying to engage positively on social media or help others engage positively? 
Yeah, also an excellent question. So it's one I definitely get asked a lot. So we've had some really interesting talks, I think, as a field, especially as a subfield of researchers who study socio-technical systems, so systems that connect social elements and social issues with technical infrastructure. So people in that space who really look at and critique socio-technical systems and think about like how we can do better, who's being left out, for example. One of the, I think, themes that's come out of that work in the social media space in the last few years is that it's, I won't say it's impossible, but it's really difficult to make all of your experiences positive. And that doesn't necessarily need to be the goal because it's not, that's not really reflective of like day-to-day life. Um, For sure. (laughs) It's arguably to like psychologically need a balance of both. But I think the takeaway there that we're like working on further articulating and researching and writing about is how we can not necessarily, you know, eradicate negative experiences online, but craft a space and the ability to essentially create like as positive experiences as possible. So have like a consistent set of positive engagements and interactions with these online tools so that they're actually enhancing your social experience similar to, you know, how face-to-face interaction works. So that like, even if there are kind of negative experiences, the ratios in favor of positive engagement, of meaningful and actually fulfilling engagement, so that there's also the ability to build up resilience against those negative experiences so that they're not, like they can be fruitfully absorbed into the general landscape of how we um, engage online. The one big caveat there is obviously situations where there are moderate to severe harassment happening or particular sets of abuse online that, you know, just should not be tolerated or would not actually contribute to like resilience building, for example, um, or anything like that. Yeah. And that's, it's a huge area still where a lot of work needs to be done on like what the exact right solution is there. So that aside, because it's, I think it's a whole other set of projects to work on, you know, like actually countering, for example, harassment and abuse, things like that, or kind of like more for like milder kind of day-to-day negative experiences that people might have online, how to shift that to more positive engagement, I would say a big part of it, maybe this sounds like a super simple solution, but I found that like, even for myself personally, this isn't necessarily the easiest thing to do every day is being very intentional about who we engage with online, what platforms we're using and why. So thinking about like the why behind our actions as we kind of structure a pattern or system of online engagement for ourselves is really, really critical. Um, Because I think that we do this sometimes unconsciously in how we select friends for ourselves or who we go after to hang out on the weekends or weekdays or whatever else. And we have these unspoken rules and boundaries that we set, hopefully, around, you know, who actually, I mean, maybe it doesn't go as smoothly all the time, but ideally, we have a general sense of who maybe in our social network makes us feel really good when we hang out and we want to do these particular activities together. But it's still 
hasn't been as easy for everyone to, to translate that to online engagement and think about like, what are our boundaries? What are our intentions when we're engaging on certain platforms and with particular groups of people? And how does that also connect to things like how much we share about our lives and with whom? What are the boundaries and protections that we have around that? Right. So one of my like longer term goals is actually to develop tools for better articulating that in a really systematic way. So one of the almost unintended outcomes, um, like I was saying for in my dissertation work, was the really powerful reflections that came from these youth when they were actually asked to sit down and articulate, okay, when do you use these platforms? How do you use them? But also why? Like, why did you decide to spend an hour on Snapchat this morning and only speak though to these three people? Like what did that, what were the the gains there and what were the benefits? And actually doing some of those exercises, just talking through that. If I do it for myself, for example, I realized, hey, like when I share these particular things, I don't necessarily have to share them with everyone. Like maybe I can use the direct messaging feature. Thinking about like how to leverage the different layers of engagement and not just kind of applying also a blanket understanding of or like a blanket set of uses for all these different platforms is I think also really critical. That's one of the things that I learned the most from especially the like nine to 12 year olds that I was working with is they have really particular patterns that they have internalized around what they gain from specific platforms and what that means for like who they speak to on different platforms. So the Snapchat, for example, streak feature is only for my three best friends because that's like what makes me feel best. So it's actually the most positive use for that platform. If I were to just do like a lot of, you know, public Snapchats, then I might be more exposed to like negative comments on more intimate details about my life versus, you know, something maybe like TikTok, where I'm much more comfortable sharing um, less intimate, but more public details about my life. And so thinking about like the, the checks and balances that you can place for yourself there, I think it'd be really powerful for getting to at least closer to like a net positive game. <laughs> it, it seems that they can teach us about how we should engage with social media. Definitely, definitely. So yeah, I always get very animated when I talk about my work there. I mean, first, it's just like it. nerding out. But second, uh, it's I, I've always loved working with kids. You know, I babysat in high school and everything, but ever since undergrad, I was actually involved throughout the year in different 4-H development programs. They have like, there's this really cool set of youth development programs in the Ithaca area too, that they combine like a lot of educational resources and workshops and practices with just regular like structured and unstructured playtime throughout the summer, you know, like kind of combining that with the summer camp type thing. And I've always felt that there's so much that we can learn from kids, especially because of the way that they're able to candidly answer questions, even about themselves. So that I think is a skill in terms of like washing away the layers that we might impose on the way that we think about our own lives. Like, I think they teach us a lot about not making assumptions about like our behavior and they answer candidly in a specific way. And they're like, yeah, that's, that's that. Like, there aren't so many like confounding additional, you know, worries or assumptions around how they're talking about their behavior. And so I think that's actually really, really useful as like a tool that we can use just personally, but also uh, in research. Um, And then I think the second 
thing that I've learned a lot from my work with young people that I try to infuse into like anytime I'm consulting with other folks or like working on a youth facing feature or product is that in the same way that they're able to very candidly like speak on different ideas, I think that honesty is really refreshing and useful. They, they have very concrete and well thought out opinions. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it seems like it's sometimes it's funny to me that that would be like at all controversial, but it's like when you're designing for kids, like, yes, they have real opinions, they have real preferences and ways of engaging socially, engaging with like technological products that should be respected and that should be taken into account when we design. And so I think actually things like subfields like co-design or participatory design um, with youth can be really, really powerful to ensure that we are not actually infusing or using like a top-down, you know, very adult-centered way of designing um, spaces for for young people. And I think that there's so much we can do still in the social media realm as well. So we're making assumptions, you know, about like the rules that they're going to follow or when and how they'll use certain things. So actually just listening to them more can be huge. And that's why I like to bring up the theme of agency a lot. I think that there's so much more we can do to actually imbue the different, for example, social media platforms that young people use with more agency on their end. Um, Because they also understand and have real thoughts and stances on things like online safety and online security. And I'm sure there's more that that all of us can learn (laughs) with regards to that too. But not that there's a lack of awareness or a lack of caring about that, at least from my research experience. It's more just meeting them on their level in terms of how they're thinking about it, how they're weighing that, and what's going to be most useful to help them engage in ways that are as safe as possible, but also are getting at you know the, the support that they're looking for and want to establish. I'd like to segue that into your teaching philosophy. I read this sentence of yours that said, you're trying to emphasize transformative learning experiences. Have you had one such experience? Oh, <laughs> yes. I would say that the that class that I took, it was like just an introduction to human computer interaction class, but it was structured in a way where each week we would read a series of articles, talk through them, talk about like the lineage of research there and what that might mean for like our own personal burgeoning research interest or where the fields can go. I would say that that was a great example of a transformative learning experience for me because one of the things that I feel is important for transformative learning experiences is a good balance between providing enough information to build up an understanding of a space but balanced with space to infuse your own thoughts and opinions and really reflections on what you're learning can actually be useful to like your own personal and professional goals and not just, you know, like way outside of the scope just of that class. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I really enjoy doing in my roles as an instructor are building in regular checkpoints, whether it's through assignments or class discussions or, you know, I'm sure many other techniques or areas that you can do this in, but building in regular checkpoints to have students articulate and reflect on why does this matter to me? Like, what does this mean for my own personal life? How might I use this for 
a career? Or how might I use this just to think about like the technologies that I use every day a little bit differently? And yeah, what does that mean for like the impact and broader scope of this class? So for me, like the transformation moment came when I was like, if I actually take the time to reflect on what it feels like to ask, for example, specific research questions or things that I'm curious about learning more about, um, if I were to follow up on this paper, or, like talk to those authors, it was transformative to see that pathway open up and say like, actually research is possible <laughs> as a career. That's really interesting mm-hmm. because our, our final project for that course is actually to design our own research studies if we're kind of building on, you know, one of the sets of areas or questions that we reviewed in the last whatever it was, 12 or 13 weeks. And that process of asking for myself, what questions would I be interested in answering? What would I want to study and look at? That was really the moment where I felt like I could use my own interests and passions to not just, you know, complete the course assignment, but also make those connections between what am I learning here and how might that actually open up like new ways of thinking, or in my case, like a new career. The sense of agency, right? Yes, exactly. I am a big believer in breaking down some of the artificial or maybe too rigid barriers that we have in the classroom sometimes between how we as instructors might set the rules or the agenda for uh, engagement um, versus students, you know, being able to influence that. What do they want to learn more about, you know, within obviously the scope of what we need to cover. (laughs) Right. I was reading one of your papers and it was fascinating. It was about the myth of oneness. Oh, yes. Wow. You went so far back. (laughs) Sweaty. I wrote that one. Oh my gosh, I think that was my second year of grad school. Yeah, it was like right leading up to qualifying exams. So fun. <laughs> I was about to say, that sounds stressful. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what the myth of oneness is? Yes. So, oh my goodness, I have to reach back actually. You know, actually, this is a great, I think this is a great tie-in to like the idea of agency too, because so at the time I was reading, it was a really interesting an exciting time for me because what I felt like the UCLA Department of Information Studies did really well for me and still does, I mean, it's like one of their greatest strengths is they very much embody the sense and like the celebration of information studies or information science as an interdisciplinary field. So really borrowing from and building on the core foundational knowledge in all of these different areas. So way more than I had ever done in undergrad, actually, I was reading from all of these different fields as part of my first year. I have a few colleagues that I really, I really admire their bodies of work where they've actually intersected information science with fields like feminist and gender studies and African-American studies just really fluidly. And so in one of our courses, we were talking, it was a course kind of centered on globalization of tech and what kinds of assumptions we might be making as designers of technology in like a really US-centered way, or at least not necessarily taking into account many other global perspectives and what that means for like how we should be thinking about changing our our paths or systems for building tech. And one of the bodies of work I read for that course was kind of critiquing some of the current approaches or gaps in feminism particularly one idea is the myth of oneness where 
the way that I think to summarize this most quickly is the idea that to gain societal advancements for all women, we kind of have to go after one set of goals, which then implies that there's one like general set of experiences and issues that women have um, and that women are facing. And, you know, in some ways, of course, there are arguments for like what can be gained from that, you know, because there's this solidarity piece and there's this, you know, idea that there can be like global participation and collaboration through that. But the issues that I was uncovering in this were that there's a sense of erasure that can happen pretty rapidly of especially like minority opinions or ideas or just, you know, not even necessarily like minority by global population, but just populations that maybe aren't at the forefront of global policymaking, um, of government policymaking on feminist issues. So what I was exploring there is how that has actually influenced the way that we talk about and incorporate issues facing women in tech spaces in general, and like in the designing and building of tech, and how to actually first acknowledge and identify what kinds of erasures are going on. And second, what do we do about it? Like, how do we move forward from there? And so some of what I wrote in my work was taking a step back, even from the myth of oneness, but also related ideas, like the sense of kind of like a universal way of designing and actually really it's not as satisfying a process, but acknowledging that there's a lot of messiness just of the human experience that we need to sit with. There's some really interesting ideas, for example, from um, one of the professors at UCLA, Ramesh Shani work, who was really helpful in crafting this paper and was teaching the course where we were talking about a lot of this work. He has a lot of research and work on like what it means to sit with tension in design and really use that to allow all of these different voices that may be inadvertently erased um, to come through actually in design. And, and often that means a lot more, you know, customization in tech experiences, a lot more just allowing for agency, even when maybe it clashes slightly with the sleekest, you know, uh, most collapsed set of design or, or ways of interacting, for example. I like this phrase a lot, sitting with tension. I think that one, that phrase, I also really like it. I can't like claim, <laughs> you know, I can't claim that phrase is my own. I can't quite say off the top of my head who coined it per se. I've, I've heard it, you know, in a lot of different just like critical information science work. But I think that continues to be so important because that continues to me to be the most symbolic space of you know, conflict in different schools of like design or different schools of HCI is like, are we willing actually to sit with that tension so that we can as robustly as possible incorporate all of these different user viewpoints? Or do we try to like collapse down experiences and behavior as much as possible so that we can get like a really sleek, very hyper-focused way of like using a technology? And I think there's some really interesting and exciting dialogue that's been happening and opening up more around like what we lose when we're going after things like minimalist design, for example, like, you know, maybe, yeah, maybe this is supposed to be the new era of sitting with tension. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us. This has been so much fun. 
Thanks for me too. I've loved talking through all of this with you and thank you for some excellent questions. <laughs> sitting with tension. This idea of sitting with discomfort and being open to learning from that tension and discomfort, whether that is learning about ourselves and our limits and maybe the fact that they stretch beyond where we think or learn about boundaries we need to set or even learning that we can breathe through the tension. These are all things that I've been working on and paying attention to recently, and have really helped me engage with some of my life experiences differently. I loved my chat with Jennifer and the incredible breadth of topics we chatted about, and while the topic of sitting with tension stuck with me the most, I also liked a point she made about how our social media lives shouldn't perhaps have solely positive experiences, or more precisely that that positive experiences shouldn't be the end goal. Just like real life. Our music is Float and Fly by Golgartelli. Thanks for listening. I will talk to you again soon.